All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think we're ready to start. My name is Dan Mitchell. I'm a senior fellow here with the Cato Institute, and it's uh, my honor and privilege to moderate today's panel. I want to start by welcoming everyone to our Hayek Auditorium here at the Cato Institute, both those of you in the audience as well as our friends who are watching on C-SPAN. We're going to be discussing today the issue of inequality, which I think actually is behind almost every controversial uh, economic issue that we have today. Uh, it's fundamentally, I think, in my simple-minded way of looking at it, an issue of whether or not the pie gets bigger over time. If the pie gets bigger over time, we can all get better off. If the pie doesn't get bigger over time, then one person becoming wealthy must mean other people uh, must become poor. But I'm a tax policy wonk, so you don't want to hear from me. What I'm going to do is introduce all three speakers in the order that they're going to speak, and then they'll come up, give their presentations, uh, hopefully 15 minutes or less each, which will leave us time uh, for Q&A afterwards. Uh, we're going to start with Brian Dimitrovic, uh, who is a uh, chairman of the history department at Sam Houston State University. Um, I like him a lot because he wrote a book called Econoclast, The Rebels Who Sparked the Supply-Side Revolution and Restored American Prosperity, because that was sort of my coming of age uh, uh, and interest in public policy. Uh, he got his education from Harvard and uh, Columbia. Uh, we'll then be uh, hearing from Alan Reynolds, who's a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. He was formerly director of research at the Hudson Institute, research director with the National Commission on Tax Reform and Economic Growth, and most importantly for today's topic, he was the author of Income and Wealth uh, from Greenwood Press in 2006. And then batting cleanup, if you can be third and be batting cleanup, uh, is Scott Winship, who was a fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. Uh, before that, he was a research manager in the Economic Mobility Project at the Pew Charitable Trust and a senior policy advisor for Third Way, and he was educated at Harvard and Northwestern. So without further ado, I'm going to turn the uh, program over to Brian. Thanks very much, Dan. Uh, it's great to see you again, and it's great to be here at this august institution, the Cato Institute, which to my mind just becomes more and more relevant with every passing year. It really, really is amazing um, how all the challenges we face are the ones that Cato's been studying for a long time. Four years into the failed recovery from the Great Recession, uh, we now know what the 2012 election is going to be about. Incredibly, it's not going to be about, uh, incredibly, it is going to be about economic fairness. That's right, not about recovery, not about growth, not about solving the problem, which is the 800-pound gorilla in the room, namely the puny state of ex-government GDP expansion, not to mention jobs, that this nation has been suffering with since the horrendous run of five straight down quarters during the collapse of 2008-2009. Forget about all that, all those real concerns, even as they are as great as we've faced in three generations. The question at hand is the two parties prepared to nominate their candidates, and this is care of the incumbent president, is whether the rich are getting more than their fair share in our straitened circumstances. Until the Republicans truly change the terms of this debate towards the clear alternative, economic growth, we're heading for a referendum on inequality come November. How it could have possibly come to thus is a story for another day. It does, after all, represent one of the great episodes of changing the subject in recent American political history. Instead, we come here today to talk about the research, the academic research, that lies at the bottom 
of the consensus on inequality at the center of the president's worldview and that the Democrats expect the electorate to take as a given. I speak of the academic research put in lights in the opening passages of President Obama's first budget of early 2009, the research that actually came to scoot so far out of the ivory tower that it gave the slogan to the Occupy Wall Street movement, that slogan being, we are the 99%. I speak, of course, of the iconic modern research on income inequality that put out in 2003 by, by uh, the French economist Thomas Piketty and his counterpart Emmanuel Saez, now of Berkeley, in an article in the Quarterly Journal of Economics called Income Inequality in the United States, 1913 to 1998. Here it is. Now, on the release of that research, Piketty and Saez soon met a formidable challenge in the form of Alan Reynolds' relentless counter-account of who gets what in the contemporary American economy, Alan's essential book of 2006, Income and Wealth. Alan and Piketty and Piketty Saez sparred a little bit uh, back then in the years before the Great Recession in the wake of income and wealth, with Alan landing all necessary punches. But who knew then that the Piketty Saez paper would soon take on a huge new life of its own after the recession hit, flogged by a progressive president and made the security blanket of the most significant protest movement since the 1960s in the form of Occupy Wall Street? Because the Piketty-Sayas research has taken on an influence in our politics and even social life, far beyond all reason in recent years, I took it upon myself to add to Alan's critiques, indeed to emphasize some of his essential corrections in the paper just issued with the Laffer Center for Supply-Side Economics. The paper I wrote uh, last month is thick with historical narrative about how inequality has always been well understood in American political economy, actually better than today, even in the battle days of the robber barons and Andrew Mellon. Indeed, my paper is at pains to point out that the country was pretty good long before the income tax ever rolled around in 1913 at crafting public policy that made sure that the baby was not thrown out with the bathwater. Policy was constructed such that inequality would be kept at bay as growth was maximized. The results weren't too shabby. From the ratification of the Constitution to the foundation of the income tax in 1913, We've got a hundredfold real increase in gross domestic product, coupled with the invention of the mass middle class. Please do consult my paper for these historical explications, ones brought on by the license Piketty and Saez themselves took in their paper to make large, evidence bereft historical generalizations about social norms, their term, being at the bottom of the up down up inequality trend that they perceived over the course of the 20th century. But rather than being the historian here today, I want to underscore one terribly fatal methodological weakness in the Piketty-Saez research that has never been corrected, let alone addressed, and even by Emmanuel Saez's own admission. This is the simple fact that Piketty and Saez, in the main, use pre-tax income as their central datum, their analytical reference point. Pre-tax income. Here it is in Piketty and Saez's own words from 2003. Quote, income, according to our definition, is computed before individual income taxes and individual payroll taxes, but after employers' payroll taxes and corporate taxes. Let's forget about the latter part of that definition having to do with corporate income. John Cochran, referencing, as he calls it, the Piketty-Saez sausage factory, has explained well enough why imputing corporate income to individuals is one tricky endeavor. And anyway, Corporate income tax rates really haven't changed all that much over the decades. 
The take-home line in the Piketty-Sayas definition is this, quote, again, income, according to our definition, is computed before individual income taxes. Now, the big discovery in the Piketty-Sayas research was that over the course of the 20th century, income inequality in the United States has followed an up, down, up pattern. In the teens and the 1920s, income inequality was high. It careened down by the 1940s, stayed low in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, then shot back up to 1920s levels in the 1980s, 90s, and then 2000s. The killer correlation that Piketty and Sayers were able to identify with, <coughs> with this pattern was that the marginal rate of the income tax varied inversely with inequality this whole time. When the marginal rate was low, 25% in the 1920s, inequality was high. When the marginal rate of the income tax was high, between 70% and 94% in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 1970s, inequality was low. And then when the marginal rate was low again, 50% and less in the 1980s and beyond, inequality bounced back up. The intuitive conclusion one draws from this sequence, and in Piketty and Saez, it is explicit, could not be clearer. In periods of high taxation, the income of the rich goes disproportionately down, and in periods of low taxation, the income of the rich goes disproportionately up. Somehow, it has gotten lost in the shuffle that none of these differences has anything to do with rich individuals actually paying taxes. It seems that what Piketty and Saez are telling us is that when taxes are high, inequality is low because the government exacts the riches' money from them for public purposes. And it seems in Piketty and Saez that when taxes are low, the government refrains from laying its hands on the rich's income and the rich therefore make out like bandits. But none of this whatsoever is taking place, given that fateful definition of income that Piketty and Saez are using. Remember, their unit of analysis is pre-tax income. When the rich's income fell in the 40s through the 1970s, it wasn't because the government was taking it with 70% to 94% income tax rates. It's because I income was not reported to begin with. Conversely, when the rich's income soared in the 1920s and in the 1980s and beyond, as tax rates were lowered, this represented an enormous new presentation of income to the government on the part of successful individuals. Indeed, it became available for taxation. You see the deadly problem with the Piketty-Sayez data sets it is fatally compromised by a bias. In eras of high taxes on the rich, the rich will obviously scramble to arrange things such that their taxable compensation comes in low. After all, if they arrange things for taxable compensation to come in high, they'll get nailed by tax rates north of 70%, and vice versa during periods of low taxes. Then the rich will not bother so much to prevent their real income from being represented as taxable income because income isn't taxed so much anymore. In sum, the awful bias in the Piketty-Sayas data set is this. High tax eras make the richest taxable income far less than their real income, and low tax eras make the richest real income far closer to their taxable income. Therefore, comparing taxable income as opposed to real income over the decades tells you nothing. Now, you may say, isn't there a nice device in economics that tells us how much the rich are hiding their income from the IRS every year? Well, there is, of course, in something called the elasticity of taxable income, or ETI. Studies of the elasticity of taxable income strive to determine the rate at which the rich take their income in non-taxable fashion, given a tax increase. The field is several decades old and fairly venerable. The consensus has been, for years, 
that for about for every 10% increase in the marginal rate of the income tax, the rich are prone to suppress their taxable income by that same rate of 10% or more. The underlying phenomenon being studied is the way the rich are able to absorb real income in the form of untaxed benefits, unrealized capital gains, loan and loss write-downs against profits, and all such stuff as that, as a way to manipulate their taxable income. Obviously, the value of taking real over taxable income goes down with the marginal rate of the income tax. And if the marginal rate of the income tax goes down by 66 points, as it did from 1944 to 1988, you could be talking about the ratio of real income to taxable income on the part of the rich going down by something like two-thirds. Emmanuel Saez actually cut his teeth as a young economist in the 1990s doing elasticity of taxable income research. Then he inexplicably dropped it in the decade of the 2000s as he concentrated on the taxable income inequality data set. The obvious question is, why not marry the two? If we have decent methodological means for ironing out the kinks in the taxable income time series, well, why not go ahead and apply them? I did, actually, in my paper, using consensus ETI estimates and in an admittedly back-of-the-envelope way. Doing so for real would require some fairly serious econometrics. But the basic pattern that emerges is this. The real income of the rich, and in particular that of the top 1% fetishized by Piketty and Saez in their inequality research, has been flat throughout the 20th century. That's right, flat. Not U-shaped, inverse U-shaped, not up, down, up, but flat. It actually would not be so hard for Saez to simply apply the consensus ETI to his data set. However, he's chosen recently to do something else. He has instead attacked the ETI literature for coming up with two generous numbers. In a paper earlier this year, Saez said that the ETI literature going back to the 1980s had a propensity to overstate the ETI for the top incomes by big orders of magnitude, upwards of sevenfold. But tellingly, Saez concluded the paper by saying we really do need more time to sort out ETI effects. And then just last April, Saez said something interesting to the New York Times. He said that he's trying to build a database on the basis of not pre-tax, but post-tax income. But he said it's going to be a huge enterprise. In other words, it would be hard. Right, it, it, would, be, it would be hard, just like it is hard to measure ETIs. How much do the rich shield their income to high rat, high tax era, in high-tax eras? Who really knows? Because the whole point is that the rich are being shifty. You know what is easy? Taking potted pre-tax adjusted gross income statistics that the IRS makes available to researchers. Piketty and Saez, in the end, took the very easy way out in their income inequality series. They took the one readily available data set and presented it. The strange thing these last nine years since 2003 is the intransigence Piketty and Saez have shown towards conceding the obvious point that their work needs to be fortified by a degree of difficulty. Pre-tax income is simply a terrible measure of the fluctuation of the rich's fortunes over eras in which tax rates on the rich change mightily. In fact, the particular weakness, the very Achilles heel of pre-tax income time series as a measure of inequality is the fluctuation in the marginal rate of the income tax. Only if that rate were stable could a pre-tax series have any provisional validity. No matter to Piketty and Saez, at the conclusion of their articles, they always go off the deep end explaining how the decline of labor unions, the erosion of the social compact, new social norms, and all this stuff is responsible for the rising inequality trend since the golden era of the middle part of the 20th century. The thing about science in general is if you, if you have poor data, but it's the readiest data available, you should go ahead and use it. But at the same time, you should be extra sensitive to the potential shortcomings of any conclusions based on the acknowledged limitations of the poor data. 
Indeed, you should welcome any improvements and when they come, be willing to toss the original evidence to begin with. This is Scientific Method and Spirit 101. Here's what we need to do as a society of informed economic commentators. This has realized that as economists, as it is practiced in its advanced form today, gives absolutely no license to accept the prima facie claims of the Piketty-Sayas data set on inequality. Rather, economics today can only adjudge the Piketty-Sayas trend of inequality over the 20th century as grossly exaggerating the highs and grossly exaggerating the lows. That this simplistic economic research is now moving our politics, as well as a seg segment of our youth in the form of Occupy Wall Street, means that this is becoming far more now than just an intellectual curiosity. Thanks. And now we'll hear from my uh, shy, retiring, bashful, and humble colleague, Alan Reynolds. Only if I can figure this thing out. I can't. All right. The, t the title, Misuse of Top... By the way, I love Brian's paper. It's insightful history. You should read the history. I'm naturally going to focus on the Piketty and size uh, numbers because that's what I do. Uh, misuse. Give me, let me give you an example of misuse of these numbers. I'm going I'm to use nothing but Piketty and size numbers, but uh, I'm not going to misuse them. A misuse would be uh, Joe Stiglitz's new book, The Price of Inequality. Chapter 1 is called America's 1% Problem. He doesn't really present much data. He sort of talks about the data. And, uh, and then he concludes, quote, the simple story of America is this. The rich are getting richer, the poor are becoming poorer and more numerous, and incomes of the middle class are stagnating or falling. Why is that a misuse of the data? Because it, the, the numbers only cover the top 10%. They are, as, they, as the authors admit, silent on any other part of the income distribution. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office does a much better job of including everybody. And what they found was that the Average incomes of the top 1% fell by 37% from 2007 to 2009. That doesn't, as increases go, that's pretty rough. And uh, uh, they also found that real median income, the stagnating or falling middle that Stiglitz refers to, real median income rose 48.8% from 1980 to 2009, including a small rise, 13.9% between the high of 2000 and the peak of 2007. Uh, as for the poverty rate, we'll get back to that in just a minute. The, uh, the second major errors in the use of these numbers all relate to forgetting the point that Brian made. These are pre-tax numbers. They are also pre-transfer numbers. They don't include any transfer payments. They don't include Social Security, the earned income tax credit, food stamps, uh, unemployment benefits. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, if, if, if Social Security isn't income, uh, I have a beef with the IRS because they keep trying to tax mine. But they leave it out, and they leave out uh, uh, benefits. They tax only cash. They only talk about cash compensation, not uh, uh, health insurance paid by, by employers. Pretty serious mistake. But in spite of the fact that this is pre-transfer, -tra pre-tax income, People use these numbers, uh, Stiglitz did, Piketty and Sayas themselves do, uh, as an argument for raising tax rates on the rich and increasing transfer payments to uh, the other 99%. Uh, that's just ridiculous. It wouldn't make any difference. The numbers ex exclude transfers and they exclude taxes. So that if you were somehow able to increase taxes on the rich, it wouldn't show up in their numbers. They don't count taxes. 
if you were somehow uh, able to double transfer payments or triple them, uh, uh, that wouldn't show up either. They don't count transfer payments. And yet these, are, these numbers are used that way all the time. This graph shows that, that problem number one with the data set is it's not a credible measure of income. And what I'm showing here is the total income. Remember, the top 1% is 1% of what? It's a ratio of 1% incomes to everybody else's income. But if you're not counting much of any, anybody, everybody else's income, then that ratio is going to be increasingly false. And what I'm showing here is what they call total income as a percent of personal income. And as you see, they're missing a large and growing share of personal income. Why? Because health benefits are becoming more important and because transfer payments are getting bigger and bigger, and they're leaving that out. And so the, this factor alone makes the top 1% rise in a quite illusionary manner simply because the denominator, total income, is shrinking and increasingly understated. And they also, by the, incidentally, they use a measure, a measure of personal income, 80% of personal income, for pre-war data, and they use it for European data, but here they just use whatever is reported in individual tax returns, minus transfer payments, et cetera. Bad measure. The uh, second big problem is it's not a credible measure of inequality. This gets back to the poverty rate that uh, Stiglitz was talking about. What you see in this graph is that when the top 1% uh, 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 share rises, notably in the 90s, the poverty rate goes down. When the top 1% falls, notably in the last few years, the poverty rate goes up. So the, 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 in, in, we, we've all learned to say when the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Uh, according to this data, that's absolutely backwards. And now if you're going to use this as the, the top 1% as a measure of inequality, you're put in the paradoxical position of saying um, that, that periods in which the poverty rate goes up is a good thing because it's, it's a reduction of inequality. Recessions are a good thing. They always reduce inequality and by that measure. Top 1% always falls. Every recession but one since 1913, the top 1% has fallen. So these folks should be cheering. The 99% particularly should be, should be cheering because in the, last, in, the, in the two years between 2000 and 2009, their share of, of income rose by five percentage points. Wow, this is a bigger share of a shrinking pie. Welcome to it, it's not much fun. That's the number they use. Uh, there are better measures, measures that include everybody. A common one is called the Gini coefficient. And a, a Gini coefficient of one would be perfect inequality. A, a Gini coefficient, meaning one person owns everything. A Gini co coefficient of zero, meaning everybody has the same amount. So they're usually in, the, in between, like 0.4. Um, the CBO's Gini coefficient, even though it includes these picket and same numbers, top 1% income was unchanged between uh, 2008, between 1988 and, 2000, uh, and, and 19, 2009. In other words, for tw 20 years, it's gone up and down, but it ended up about the same. Uh, uh, some academics, uh, uh, Rick Burkhauser, Laramore, and Simon put out a paper in 2010 where they took a Gini coefficient from census data, and they made just a couple of adjustments. They included cash tr transfers, not food stamps, just cash transfers. And they included uh, the, the insurance benefit of health insurance. That includes Medicare, Medicaid, but also employer-paid health insurance. And they came up with the following, and they used just the cyclical peaks. So at the cyclical peak of, of 1989, that genie was 0.372. In the peak of uh, 2000, it was lower, 0.364. And at the peak of 2007, it was lower still, 0.362. 
So uh, that's a fairly broad measure of inequality, and it is cyclically adjusted, and it's not rising for what it's worth. And the last thing I want to talk about is the less taxable income, the behavioral response to changes in tax rates. And I'm just going to do this in the simplest way I know how, which is to say, let's look at the real dollars that the top 1% receives. I've derived these simply enough from Piketty and Scott data. They do it as percentages. I do it in real dollars. And the blue line is salary, but that also includes bonuses and stock options, all income from labor. The green line is other, mostly business income that is uh, taxed at the individual level, unincorporated business, S-corporations, partnerships. And the red line is capital gains, which is, of course, the, the thing that drives it most of the time, particularly in the CBO numbers. Now, what, what's moving these things? Well, you see this big spike in capital gains in 86. That's people rushing to sell assets, businesses, stocks. Uh, before the tax rate goes up in the following years. It went from 20 to 28 as part of the tax reform. It spikes way up, and then it stays very, very low. So while the capital gains rate was high, 28%, that part of top 1% income was low, understating, making it look like there wasn't much of a rise. And then in 1997, we cut the capital gains tax rate back down to 20% again, and capital gains spiked rather dramatically with the help of the Internet and the and the technological revolution going on at that time. Piketty and Saez always say that most of the trend in the top 1% incomes has been in labor. That's obviously not a bad thing to say when you're talking about the period up until 2000, but it does, that's the blue line. There's a big spike right after the 86 tax reform, which plays havoc with all of these numbers, and it is exactly what you would expect from ETI. When you cut the top tax rate from 50% to 28%, you cut it almost in half, the ETI literature tells us you should expect the amount of income reported to practically double, and it did practically double just in a couple of, of uh, years. And then it kind of levels off and goes up again, and I'll tell you later about the next one. The green, the other, spikes up at the time of the 86 tax reform. That is simply shifting of income from corporate to non-corporate forms. The corporate tax was higher than the individual tax rate, which had dropped to 28%. So it made sense to convert existing corporations to partnerships or subchapter S or LLCs. And it also made sense for new corporations to, to be created in that form. And so you get a big spike, which adds the top 1% income. But it's totally illusory. Moving money from, from a corporate form to an individual form is not an increase in income. It's just a different way of reporting it. And yet, so I mean, that's just wrong. Bogus. Um, the increases in, from 97 to 2000 are largely driven by the capital gain spike, which is a mixture of lower tax rates and technology boom. But there's also something going on, and that is stock options. Uh, by the end of 2001, uh, the, the uh, Survey of Consumer Finances reports that stock options were um, 11% of Americans had stock options. I missed that boat somehow or other. Um, and it was a proliferation of non-qualified stock options, which when realized after a three- or four-year waiting period were taxed as ordinary income, and you get a spike in ordinary income. But since then, there's been no gain in labor income, not even at the peak of 2007. Uh, and you get another spike in capital gains. And then we have the 2003 cut in capital gains to 15%. What does the theory ETI tell us? We should expect a big spike in capital gains. We got it. Um, we see a big spike in other income. That's partly business income, but the big thing is 
you have a tripling in real terms of dividend income of the top 1%. I never held dividend-paying stocks when the tax on them was 40 or 50%, but at 15%, I'm thinking, hmm, dividends look pretty good to me, and apparently a lot of people agreed with me. So you have a big increase in the amount of income. And by the way, and, and, and uh, it's arguable that this is a tax-raising device because there was such a big increase in the amount of reported dividends enough to probably offset the lower rate. And then, of course, we have the, uh, the recession, which is the grand nastiness of it all. So this is just a simple way of describing ETI. And you can see for yourself how people were behaving when tax rates changed. Um, this is a quote from, uh, from uh, Piketty and Saez with a young woman from MIT, Sancheva, I forget her first name, um, Stephanie, I think. And it says there's a clear negative correlation between top 1% income share and the marginal tax rate. And this graph, is, which is from another publication Saez was involved in, uh, I couldn't get the axes, but I stole it as best I can after all copyright violation. But basically, you can see for yourself when the top marginal rate was high, which is basically from 1932 on, top 1% are smart enough not to report much income. Then it comes down in the 80s and top 1% rises. And what Piketty and Saez and Stancheva say is, if we attribute the entire rise in top income share to the decline in the top tax rate, this translates into an elasticity of top incomes with respect to the net of tax rate of around one. Uh, this statement can be turned around. It is reversible. If the elasticity is around one, that means we can explain all of the rise in the top 1% share as a behavioral response to lower tax rates, which is exactly what I think is true. And that doesn't even include capital gains, which is a big part, missing part of that story. The response of capital gains was obviously important in the chart I just showed you. Uh, Tony Atkinson and, and, uh, and Andrew Lee studied five Anglo-Saxon countries from 1970 to 2000. They, Tony Atkinson is, by the way, a, a, a co-author with Piketty and Saez. Um, and what they, what they found, what Atkinson and Lee found, was uh, we estimate that reductions in tax rates explain between one-third and one-half of the rise in the income of the richest percentile group. Now, even if it was only, say, half, I'm saying it's more than that, uh, this makes these numbers really not appropriate for the uses to which they're being put. It certainly doesn't make them uh, appropriate as an uh, uh, excuse for ra raising tax rates or, or increasing transfer payments because tax rates and transfer payments aren't counted in the data. That's all I have to say. Thanks. Scott, over to you. I can do this. All you have to do is minimize. Yeah, minimize is what I'm looking for. Escape. There it is. Are and if any speakers have cell phones on, by the way, turn them off because it causes a little bit of feedback. Get that, that little line better. He's got younger eyes. <laughs> yeah, just deal with it. I am a senior, and therefore I'm entitled to a portion of his income. I was going to say, as long as it's not coming out of my time. <laughs> Um, let's see. So let me uh, thank the Cato Institute 
uh, for inviting me to be on the panel today. Uh, I'm pretty excited. Uh, lately, I don't get to be the lefty on the panel. Um, actually, sort of consider myself to be a, a, you know, one of the one of about a half a dozen libertarians uh, running wild in the world today. Um, uh, but I, I greatly appreciate um, all the Cato does, uh, emphasizing the importance of markets uh, for widely and efficiently promoting happiness. I've also benefited greatly, even within the last 24 hours, I should say, uh, from grappling with Alan's work um, specifically. Um, and I'm really glad to have a chance to respond uh, to Brian's uh, provocative paper. Um, so let me start. I want to disagree, or I want to agree, rather, uh, that the questions uh, that Brian raises about taxes, inequality, and living standards um, generally, and uh, the questions he raises about the research of uh, Piketty and Saez specifically are important ones. Um, to, to a point, I even sympathize with his answers. Uh, at some point, um, high marginal tax rates almost surely do uh, hurt growth by reducing investment and work among those who make the most money. Um, diminished inequality resulting from high taxes can actually translate into uh, harm done to the middle class uh, and to the poor. Uh, at the very least, it can, it can be benign. Um, so I've argued uh, elsewhere that uh, the fact that inequality dropped quite a bit uh, from 2007 to 2009 uh, presumably did not help anybody uh, in the middle class or at the bottom, and therefore the idea that it necessarily uh, rising inequality before then harmed the middle class and the poor, uh, we have to really seriously uh, consider the idea that, that that's just not true. Um, finally, the post-1980 increase in inequality found by Piketty and Saez uh, may very well be exaggerated. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time over the last few years analyzing their data from a skeptical perspective. Um, all this said, I want to argue that, uh, that Brian's case for each of his empirical claims um, is far too weak uh, to make them convincing. Um, so consider first whether high tax rates uh, hurt economic growth. Um, Brian's discussion of the growth in the federal income tax is informative. Uh, it reminds us of just how much the New Deal uh, in World War II changed the federal income tax. Uh, as he describes, from 1913 to 1931, Income tax rates were low, with the top rate no higher than 25%, uh, except for eight years uh, during and after World War I. Um, starting in 1932, however, uh, the top rate was above 50%. Uh, just as importantly, from 1940 to 1943, uh, personal exemptions were lowered to the point where, for the first time, uh, most Americans were actually subject to the federal income tax. Uh, so the rate hikes were driven by the New Deal. Um, the exemption cuts were driven by the, the fiscal demands of World War II. Um, but contrary to the experience after World War I, uh, after World War II ended, uh, top rates remained high. Uh, they remained above 50% for half a century after the 1932 hike. Um, and personal exemptions remained low so that taxation of income continued to be much more universal uh, than it had been in the past. Uh, now, you could argue that since 1980, we've gone through a third era where tax rates have come down across the board. Uh, and more and more people in the bottom half have been removed from the tax rolls entirely, so that today uh, about half of households actually pay no uh, federal income tax at all. Um, so it's almost certainly true that these changes in marginal tax rates have, so, have had some impact on, on economic growth. But Brian wants to argue that they have been determinative of growth. Uh, for example, he writes that, quote, perhaps the most telling statistic, uh, end quote, illustrating the cost of high taxation is that before the introduction of the federal income tax, 
uh, annual growth was 4%, while in the years since, it's been only 3.2%. Um, so this sort of comparison would, would tell us next to nothing about the relationship between growth and taxes. Even if it was valid, many other things uh, than the presence or absence of a federal income tax changed uh, between those two periods. Um, but that aside, these numbers uh, are misleading because they don't take population growth into account. Um, higher population growth rates in the pre-1930 era uh, grew the economy, uh, but those gains were spread around more people, of course. Um, so on a per-person basis, uh, GDP from 1790 to 1913, uh, the, the pre-income tax era, grew not by 4%, but by 1.5%. Uh, um, from 1913 to 2011, it grew by 2%. Uh, so per-person growth has actually been higher since uh, the income tax uh, was introduced, um, not lower. Uh, the, these come from the same uh, source that, that Brian used, um, and, and they really show that uh, there's no basis for arguing that, quote, had conditions not changed in 1913, the poor and middle class would be better off today. Uh, the very mechanism for reducing inequality, the progressive income tax, contributed to a precipitous decline in the trend of living standards for those not at the top of the income scale. Um, so to be clear, I'm not arguing that the introduction of the income tax increased growth. Uh, I'm only pointing out that properly analyzed, uh, the evidence that Brian presents actually contradicts his claim. Um, and, and by the way, uh, the Paquetti and Saez data uh, shows that for the bottom 90%, uh, they're about three times richer today than they were in 1917. So it's also not clear where these, uh, this precipitous decline in living standards is coming from. Um, Okay, so Brian also intimates that the low tax rates of the 1920s and the high tax rates of the 1930s were responsible for, respectively, the strong and weak growth uh, of those two decades. Similarly, he argues that the post-war boom was confined to a small period uh, in the 1960s and attributes the timing uh, to Kennedy's tax cuts. Um, but in neither case uh, does he present evidence that would allow us to disentangle, again, these, these changes in, in tax rates from other changes in, uh, affecting the economy. Um, an easy way to make this point is uh, to take a look at this chart. So I put together uh, several uh, business cycles. Um, I combined a few small ones uh, between 1937 and 57, I think, to try to get these roughly to be 10 years. Um, and, and I've plotted uh, GDP per capita uh, against the average top marginal tax rate uh, of the business cycle. Um, and what you can see in the shaded area is that there are actually two of these transitions between business cycles. Uh, that support uh, that support Brian. Um, see if I can get this right. Uh, so I'm not using this right. Uh, basically, the the, the two uh, periods that you see from 1937 to 48, uh, and then from 1948 to 57, uh, you can see the tax rates increased and annual growth declined uh, pretty precipitously. Then you can see in the next period from 48 57 to 1957 to 69. Uh, tax rates declined and growth increased. Um, but in all of the other periods, uh, the evidence mostly goes against uh, Brian's, Brian's view. So when tax rates declined, uh, uh, growth rate, um, uh, I'm sorry, when, when, the, when average uh, top marginal tax rates uh, declined, um, you saw declines in growth, not increases in growth. So again, I'm not arguing this is causal. I'm just, I'm just sort of making a point that the evidence in the paper uh, really doesn't doesn't help Brian make the case that he wants to make. Um, okay, so when I compared marginal tax rates to GDP per worker rather than per capita, uh, the picture gets a little bit better for three out of these seven transitions. Um, they go the direction that, that Brian hypothesizes. But interestingly, from 1948 to 57 to 1957 to 69, um, 
what happens is that uh, taxes declined, but growth per worker actually slowed. Um, so again, this is noteworthy because Brian wants to argue that the 1960s was really the only uh, part of this era um, that experienced any growth and that was largely because of, uh, of tax cuts. Um, but that's a function of choosing uh, kind of the, the golden era uh, as, as starting in 1944 um, when we were in the middle of World War II and most of our prime age, not most, but a lot of our uh, prime age workers were uh, actually fighting overseas. Um, and then picking 1960 arbitrarily as being uh, kind of the point where, where things got better. If you measure things from business cycle to business cycle, um, what this chart shows uh, is that actually the 1948 to 57 period looks pretty good, 2% uh, annual growth over uh, those nine years. Um, if you look at GDP per worker, it looks better than uh, the 1957 to 1969 era. Um, and then you can also see from 44 to 48, there was this precipitous decline in growth. Uh, we know why that is, though. That basically all stems to demobilization from, uh, from World War II uh, that occurred in one year uh, between 1945 and 1946 uh, when GDP per capita dropped by 12%. Um, so it didn't have anything to do with high tax rates. Uh, the economy boomed from 1948 to 57 despite them. Um, so to repeat, uh, I, I strongly believe that the, the high tax rates of that era actually did have a negative impact uh, on growth. Um, but, but the analyses uh, that Brian presents in the paper just don't support that case. Um, okay, so the second part of Brian's paper involves a, a subtle shift. In the first part, he's sort of arguing uh, that increases or that, that declines in inequality have trade-offs in the form of uh, slower growth that actually hurt the middle and the bottom. In the second part of the paper, he's, he's now arguing that uh, actually there's, there hasn't been uh, a, an increase in inequality or, or, or a previous decline in inequality. It's all kind of a, an artifact of, uh, of tax data. Um, so those both can't be right, um, but, but let me sort of tackle this, this second argument as well. Um, so Brian argues the estimates are misleading because they obscure the possibility that high marginal tax rates uh, in earlier decades inspired the rich to take compensation uh, in forms that don't show up in the data or to shift their incomes around uh, otherwise in ways that, uh, that, that obscure it from the, the data that's showing uh, first declines and then increases in inequality. Um, so this is almost surely true to some extent. It's an empirical question, obviously, how much. Um, and uh, so I think where I disagree, uh, so I agree with Brian and certainly with Alan, uh, whose book everybody should read, Income and Wealth, um, that this is uh, an understudied question, an important question, and a potential weakness of the Paquetti and Saez data. Um, but I, I disagree with Brian and probably Alan uh, about how much tax avoidance is likely to affect uh, the Paquetti and Saez figures. Um, so Brian notes that in his earlier work, Saez showed that the amount of taxable income uh, reported is sensitive to marginal tax rates. This is the elasticity of uh, taxable income that Alan and, and he were both talking about. Um, then he asserts that despite the evidence in his later, quote, in his later famous work with uh, Tomas Piketty on income inequality, Saez makes no reference to the elasticity of taxable income. Um, that's just not true. So if anyone has uh, access to the quarterly journal of economics, they can take a look at either page four or page 31 um, to see for themselves. Uh, now, one doesn't have to agree with Piketty and Saez's conclusion uh, that tax avoidance doesn't affect their results. Um, but Piketty and Saez do acknowledge the issue. For that matter, uh, Saez, in a 2004 paper, empirically tested uh, or tried to test the extent to which uh, this sort of income shifting could affect his results. Um, now, he concluded that two points out of the nine-point increase from uh, 1960 to 2000 could potentially be explained by marginal tax rate changes. Uh, 
again, you don't have to agree with that conclusion, but he's actually tried to take a look at this and to take this critique at least somewhat seriously. Um, furthermore, there's an issue about elasticity of taxable income uh, that, that makes all of this complicated. So uh, the fact that the reported taxable incomes could be sensitive to, to top marginal tax rates could derive from, from several different causes. So, uh, so what Brian is talking about and what Alan's been talking about is uh, that uh, the rich can sort of move their income, avoid uh, income taxes or capital gains taxes, depending on how rates change, and that that uh, doesn't show up in the data and produces an artifact of, of changing inequality or, or unchanging inequality. Um, but another effect that's embedded in this elasticity uh, is that uh, the, the, the folks at the top may simply just choose to work less or to invest uh, less, in which case um, it, you'll see a decline in income or an increase in income because of that response, but it's not an artifact. It's a real you know, inequality actually did change as a result of that, um, so it doesn't actually uh, uh, hurt their, uh, uh, their conclusions at all. Um, so the big question is, is what this elastic, this income shifting elasticity is what Saez actually has called it, is. Um, Saez thinks it's, it's very small. Uh, I happen to uh, believe uh, with Alan that, uh, that his evidence uh, is pretty weak uh, on that point. Um, but I think in general the literature is kind of a mess on this question. Um, you know, it could be, it could be anywhere from uh, where Saez thinks it is uh, at about 0.5, which is on the, on the very low end, uh, to the higher estimates are around two. Uh, whoever's right, this makes a huge difference in, in, in terms of how these uh, how, how uh, accurate their numbers are. So I don't find Sias's claim that tax avoidance doesn't threaten his estimates very plausible. Um, but then again, I can't agree that in Brian's words, the factually legitimate option is to dismiss the Piketty Sias research outright. Uh, the, the research is, is highly ambiguous. Um, Allen's evidence, I think, is is really persuasive uh, that that changes in the tax code. Uh, can have short-term, uh, certainly short-term impacts on the type and amount of income that, that shows up on tax returns. The big question is whether it would affect the long-run uh, increase that we see or, or whether it would affect the sort of flat inequality that we saw uh, before, before the late 1970s. Um, and I think that's a tougher, uh, a tougher case to make. So a lot of people... Um, switch their incomes uh, from, uh, a, a lot of uh, businesses switched from reporting income as corporate income on corporate tax returns to reporting it on individual income tax returns as S-corporation incomes, which I think Alan has done more than anybody to, to point that out. Um, and that, that clearly shows up in the data uh, after 1980 um, as, as increases in, in uh, business income received. Um, but if that change hadn't happened, uh, as, as uh, Saez has pointed out himself, um, folks still would have received that income in the form of capital gains. They, they eventually would have uh, realized their gains, um, which uh, that income had been reported on, on corporate tax returns you know, for years. Eventually, the shareholders realized gains, and that shows up on the individual income tax returns. So, and, and, and because these are sort of gains that are accumulating over time, uh, in the background, once they're realized uh, and they show up on tax returns, it's going to show up as, as kind of an even bigger concentration of income at the top than if they had kind of reported uh, them all the way through, which is what happens when they, uh, when they actually have to report their S-corporation uh, income. So, so again, the, the fact that you see these spikes at, at particular points, uh, I think, uh, really supports um, Alan's case, but it's less clear to me that, uh, that it negates uh, the big increases that we've seen in inequality over time. 
Um, so I think I'll just stop there and, and say that uh, this, this is an area where I, I, I wish uh, kind of the conventional view, uh, which is that there's nothing wrong with the Paquetti and Saez estimates, uh, was a little more uh, gray and that people were more skeptical for all of the reasons uh, that Alan uh, has given in the past. Um, but, uh, but I think the, provisionally at least, the, the, the sort of best guess as to what's happened uh, to inequality over time is that it has uh, increased quite a bit at the top. Uh, and that uh, conclusion, you know, may be overturned at some point. Um, but I, I think for now, uh, the evidence against it is not strong enough um, to, uh, to, to ditch it entirely. So I'll stop there. Thanks. Okay, we're going to go to Q&A uh, now. Uh, a couple of rules. Everyone has to follow the rules. Please wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone so everyone in the room, as well as the people watching online and watching on C-SPAN, can hear the question. And uh, announce your name and affiliation. We don't need to know if you're a Capricorn, you like long walks on the beach, but at least who you are and uh, who you are with. And of course, if the uh, people on the panel want to take the opportunity in responding to questions to also respond to each other and what's been said, uh, that's welcome too, although we want to make sure we get as many questions as possible. And I'm going to abuse my position to ask the first question, uh, and I want to direct this to Brian and uh, Alan. Uh, Y'all were making the point about pre-tax income, post-tax income. Does it change your analysis? You're here at the Libertarian Cato Institute. We want to go back to the world with much less government, much fewer transfers, no income tax. Does that change anything that you all had to say? Uh, no, I mean, to tell you the truth, um, you know, I mean, I, I think Cato needs to keep going, go, going further. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, look, that- but, but wouldn't it increase inequality if we went to that uh, state of world? Well, we don't have the data on it. I mean, I, that's my conclusion. We don't have data on income inequality in the United States. We just don't have it. I mean, Paquetti and Saez is fatally flawed. That means we don't have the data. So I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, the, uh, the, the pre-tax data are pre-tax data. You're, you're suggesting the behavior would be different. I'm, I'm well, I'm, 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 I think some people uh, on your side would say that Inequality is not a problem because we have so much redistribution. But you're at an institution that doesn't like redistribution, so does that, how does that change your argument, if any? Well, it, 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 it doesn't affect the Piketty and Saez numbers because they don't account for any redistribution. They don't account, they don't count any transfer payments, not just the means-tested ones, none of them. They don't count. You know, my, my annuity check that I, that I, for the annuity I bought, they count. The other annuity, which comes from Social Security, they don't count it. So uh, you can distribute money through... <coughs> Unemployment benefits, they don't count it. Um, that, that is a much more relevant remark for the Congressional Budget Office, which tries to meld uh, some data that includes that, those transfer payments and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but, but even with, with transfer payments, there's behavioral issues are key. Uh, the, the, the difficulty with transfer payments is they transfer money from people who earned it to people who didn't earn it, and that discourages the person who's paying the taxes, and it discourages the person who's getting the transfer payment so that you, uh, you have a, 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 a disincentive, particularly at the margin, whereas if you, if, you take, if you work too hard or you take another job, you're going to lose not only your unemployment check but also food stamps, Medicaid, and some other stuff. So you don't do it. We still have some poverty traps mm -hmm. built into this system. 
but the, the fundamental point about Piketty and Zaya's data is since they don't account for transfer payments and they don't account for taxation, they are fundamentally irrelevant to questions of what we should do with taxes and transfer payments. They're just irrelevant. Okay, and, and before we no, go... It's the most cited data in the world. Okay, and before we go to the audience, one real quick one for uh, Scott. You mentioned, uh, you talked about the difference between what might be real changes in income versus just an artifact. Um, and you said that there might actually be a reduction in inequality because the rich are earning less. Is that a good thing? Does that help the poor to have the rich earn less? Uh, so th this is where I end up um, not making friends on the left because I've argued uh, in, in several places that uh, that there's not actually very strong evidence that inequality, that rising inequality, uh, the increase that we've seen at the top since 1980 has actually uh, hurt anybody. Um, so I, I don't think a reduction in inequality uh, for its own sake um, makes much sense. Uh, if, if, if it could be shown that, that it actually did help uh, people in the middle and the bottom, you know, then I, I think people are going to have different views uh, where they sit, where they stand. Um, but but it's pretty remarkable the extent to which the debate proceeds as if it's obvious uh, that reducing inequality helps, helps folks uh, elsewhere. Okay, let's go to questions. Uh, uh, up there in the uh, middle, Scott Hodge there. I, we actually know his name already, but you can say where you work, Scott. Hi, I'm Scott Hodge with the Tax Foundation. Uh, it seems to me we're also um, overlooking a lot of demographic trends that are driving perceptions of inequality. In addition to the changes in business income, which is reported on tax returns, there have been a lot of other demographic changes that I think that are driving some appearances of inequality. One is age. We have now uh, the pig of the, the baby boomers going through the python, about 70 million uh, uh, people nearing retirement. They're at their peak earnings potential. You have the rise of dual-earner couples, uh, which we've never seen before, about two-thirds of all couples. Are, are two earners. Um, and then education. The re, as we all know, the returns to higher education are greater than they ever have been. Those are among some of the biggest um, uh, changes that we're seeing in, in America today, and yet none of that is being ac accounted for in any of this, this uh, uh, data. Uh, can you speak to that at, at any point um, in how that might uh, affect, if we were to account for some of that uh, in, in these measures of inequality? So, uh, so it, jump in. In some ways, um, in some ways, the the question of inequality trends at the very top, and the questions of of inequality within the ninety nine percent, if you will, uh, are very different uh, uh, kettles of fish. So, within the ninety nine percent, it's certainly true that uh, that increasingly, if you have more schooling, um, that that there's more of a payoff to that, and that's driving a lot of the inequality within the 99%. Similarly, uh, things like family structure uh, changes over time have become a lot more important. When you look at the, the changes at the very top, uh, in, in so far as we can tell, uh, most of the research shows that it's not so much these demographic uh, changes or, or changes in, in education, that it's more kind of about global, uh, global markets. So it's it's that there's a bigger finance sector and, and that uh, you know, investing your money well is increasingly important. And so the people who manage uh, funds for large customers do a lot better than they used to. Or 
the importance of having the best person as your CEO uh, in your industry. Uh, that's, that's risen quite a bit over time as global markets have, have increased. Um, so in, from, what, from what I uh, have read, people tend to, to, to sort of look at these two phenomena as being, as being pretty different. Now that said, uh, I, I did take a look. So uh, I have another slide that I didn't present, but which actually shows you can use uh, survey data to look at this, the share of income received by the top 1% over time rather than the, the, the IRS data uh, that Piketty and Saez use. Um, and when you do that, you actually find a remarkably similar trend since, uh, since the mid-1980s, which is as far, only as far back as you can go. Um, I did that again, uh, lopping off um, anyone who was over 60 years old, I think, uh, in the survey data. Uh, and, and it wasn't really all that different um, than if I included them. Now, you might argue that the, the retirement of the baby boomers is sort of this coming wave and that we won't see it until you know, 10 years from now. But, um, um, when we talk about rich and poor, we're often talking about the same people at different stages of life. I was, I was telling Scott that when I went to UCLA, I lived in an animal hospital, so I'd have to pay rent. So I was poor, okay? <laughs> but, uh, but I was acquiring human capital, and that human capital education would pay off over time, and, and it has. Um, and when you look at the uh, composition of income groups at any moment in time, the top income group has at least two workers on average, sometimes more like two and a half, the top 10%, for example, uh, whereas the bottom 20% has less than a half worker per household, and that's usually part-time. There are very few full-time workers in the bottom 20%. That doesn't, I'm not saying they're lazy. I'm saying that many of them are retired. Many of them are very young, very old. Many of them are unemployed. That can put you down there for a while. Uh, and... Um, uh, many of them may be students uh, living in an animal hospital. I don't know. But, but uh, it, it's certainly true that working people make more than people who don't work in terms of labor income, and that two-earner families make more than zero-earner families. And if that weren't the case, we wouldn't have much incentive to work. Yeah, I mean, let me just uh, make one point, and that is, you know, what you describe would be hard work. I mean, you know, how does education and, you know, the life cycle feed into inequality? That's tough. Um, and it's too easy just to count pre-tax income. Why don't we do what we can? Why don't we take Piketty and Sayers' data set and apply the ETI consensus estimates to it? That's something we can do. And you know what happens when that results? You get a flat line of top 1% income over the 20th century. And that can be our new basis for discussion instead of the stuff about an inverse U. Next question. Right there. Hi, so I'm Jim Lowen. I'm an independent scholar. I'm author of the book, uh, Lies My Teacher Told Me, among other things. Um, I have two conclusions I draw, and I just wonder your comments on it. First conclusion from what you all have said, it seems to me that the rich cannot be taxed. Or to put it another way, they cannot be taxed much because they will transfer their money around. So maybe this whole kind of debate, not only in here, but in, in the greater world, is somewhat academic. I don't know. Um, second point is... Uh, I'm glad that Mr. Reynolds brought up the Gini index, uh, Gini coefficient. I think it's the, the best overall way of measuring the amount of inequality in a society. And the United States has the highest Gini index of any industrialized nation, and it has increased uh, over the last 20 years, especially if you look at post, along with the first speakers, at post-taxation Gini indices across. And the kinds of societies that have higher indices 
are not the kinds of societies that most of us, I think, would want to live in. Comments? All right. Is the U.S. turning into an oligarchy? Comments? I'd, I'd like both of those. Can I have both of those? <laughs> they can't be taxed. Um, we've tried it. We had a, you know, tax rates as high as 91% uh, during the Eisenhower years, and the a individual income tax brought in 7.7% of GDP. Then along came Jack Kennedy, cut, it by, cut rates across the board by 22% taking the top rate from 91 to 70 and taking the lowest from 20 to 14. And uh, the individual income tax brought in about 8.1% of GDP. And eventually we got around to taking the top rate down to 28% and it still brought in over 8% of GDP. So uh, on the face of it, yeah, high tax rates don't work. And that's why almost every country has abandoned them. Uh, India cut the top rate, rate from 60 to 30, Brazil from 55 to 27 and a half. Uh, Russia from 60 to 13 and so on. Uh, oh, those are the BRIC countries I'm talking about. And they all did pretty well after they did that, just as uh, as happened many times in history. Uh, now, the international genies, be careful with those uh, because they count income differently. Um, what we know from the OECD uh, publication, which I don't have at my fingertips, is that the, the U.S. has the most progressive income and payroll tax system of in the OECD. The U.S. is quite a progressive tax system, partly because of the refundable uh, income tax credits, but those don't often appear. The EITC and refundable child's credits won't appear in the, in the data because they're not after-tax data. Uh, most other countries distribute welfare payments in cash. The U.S. has always been habituated to doing things like food stamps and Medicaid and uh, special benefits of that sort, uh, energy subsidies and stuff like that doesn't show up in the data. So uh, I, I don't think the, that the international comparisons that exist are valid and um, uh, if we could, that's, a, that's a, a good area to explore, to do some better international comparisons that define income the same way, do it after tax and, and count in-kind transfer payments. Hasn't been done yet. Yeah, I mean, I'm just gonna add that uh, the oligarchy problem is more severe under regimes of high taxes on the rich because on two counts, then the rich uh, make their money privately, and number two, they don't allocate their resources for broad purposes. They allocate their resources such as, so as to protect themselves. So the, the oligarchy uh, issue is more severe under, under regimes of high taxes. I, I mean, I just add that, uh, I guess, two points. You know, I think it's it's not dangerous, but it's sort of, it's, it's misleading, I think, to, to, to worry too much about uh, comparing countries' genie indices. You know, there may be comparability issues, like Alan said. But fundamentally, it kind of points out, I mean, the U.S. and India don't have dissimilar genie indices. But the poorest households in the U.S. Uh, are essentially richer than, than the richest households uh, in India. Now, that's actually true. There's, Milo Brankovic has, uh, has actually crunched the numbers. Um, so... So it, inequality is not the only thing that, that matters, I think. The other point I want to make that I think you'll be more receptive to is, is that you're absolutely right that, that genies have increased over time, and uh, which points out that there is other evidence uh, that's not kind of subject to all of these uh, interpretation problems that the Piketty and Saez figures uh, are subject to. Um, the increases aren't as dramatic as what Piketty and Saez show at the very top, but, but rising inequality is something uh, that, that has been going on in the U.S., uh, we can come back to it. Where it's increased is, is pretty interesting, I think, in some ways. Can I get one more piece of that? It'll be quick. 
if we use the Gini coefficient for disposable income after tax real income, and this is a, a Census Bureau definition number 14, uh, it hasn't increased at all. It looks like it increases 93, but that's because they started counting income differently in 90. They ca captured more high income. Uh, but basically, it's uh, 0 0.4 in 1994 and 0 0.4 in 2006 and 0 0.392 in 2008, 2009, 2009. And as I mentioned, the CBO, uh, which actually uses the tax-based data for top 1%, uh, their genie is no higher than it was in the late 80s. Of course, we're, that was a, wasn't a recession, so our, ours may go up in the future by their measure. Okay, gentleman up there at the green shirt. Al Milliken, AM Media. In response to the statement, we don't have the data in the U.S., what other nations are doing a better job at providing data, and what role does the U.S. Census Bureau play in gathering this data? In gathering uh, just inequality data? So the, the trick is that to capture what's going on at the very top, and even so even within the top 1%, where the real action is, uh, is the higher up you go. So it's really the top half of the top 1%. Within that, you know, it's even more dramatic if you look at the, the top 1% of the top 1%. So the problem is to actually capture these folks in a, in a household survey that you might, the Census Bureau might conduct, it just has to be a huge survey. Um, because you know the the top one percent of the top one percent is just a small group, um, and that's why uh, for the most part, um, if you want to look at the very top, you're stuck with the the IRS data. Um, the survey of consumer finances, which is a, a small survey that the Federal Reserve Board does, um, does make a special effort to to interview a lot of people at the very top, and they do that by actually getting uh, tax return information from uh, the the IRS. Um, so there are things that you could do. I, I think. It would be tough uh, for the Census Bureau, which is the main statistical agency in the U.S. that collects income, to I think to do more about about income at the very. Do top. any countries figure out ways of getting this data? Well, I mean, you know, there are a lot of countries that uh, where the state is um, is much bigger uh, than in the U.S. and and they do things that wouldn't fly in the U.S. So Scandinavian countries have, you know, this incredibly detailed data on everybody uh, going back decades, and they can do ridiculous things uh, with their income data. I think there's, you know, there are privacy concerns and, and, and things like that in the U.S. that I think sort of prevent that sort of thing. Well, in Norway, they put your, your, the amount of tax you paid online, which uh, mm. Mitt Romney might have uh, <laughs> some uh, issues with. Uh, all right, uh, over there. Edward Roeder, Sunshine Press. Conservatives are fond of saying that if you tax something, you'll get less of it. And if you cut taxes on it, you'll get more of it. Why then is it good policy to tax work at such a higher rate than we tax rich people for being idle? No. Anybody want to? Uh... We're, we're, we're referring, I I'm guess. I'm the only idle rich person yeah, right, on the panel, right. I think. <laughs> uh, and here I am working. Silly me. Uh, it, it's a practical issue. If you ask me, is it, would it be fairer to tax capital gains at, the, at this 35%? I don't know. Maybe it would be fairer. I wouldn't realize any capital gains. I just simply, you know, nobody has to realize a capital gain. 
and the the idea that even you know this this notion that uh, well never mind but the point the point is that the cap the, you, nobody has to hold dividend paying stocks we can hold tax exempt bonds you don't have to hold uh, the, you can put this stuff in an IRA where you don't pay taxes on it uh, you don't have to sell an unrealized gain is worth just as much as a realized gain and the richer you are the less likely you have to sell so there is uh, elasticity issues are pr practical importance uh, that. You just, there are some things you can't tax very well. What, what you can tax heavily and get away with is liquor and tobacco, and that's why all around the world people tax liquor and tobacco heavily. Not because it's moral, but because it raises a lot of money. Uh, yeah, let me uh, add that it's you know, something of a myth uh, that o over the decades that capital gains taxes have been lower than uh, income taxes rates. Uh, you know, the, the real capital gains rate in the 1970s was over 100% uh, because you know, inflation was running 10% per year. And, you know, the statutory rate was like 35%. So, uh, no, 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 capital gains taxes, taxation errors of high inflation, which we have seen in the 20th century, are nosebleed. And, you know, it's the rich who, who are bearing the burden. Uh, I have some data on this. <laughs> when, the, when the top tax rate briefly hit 40% just before, and it would be 1977, the re, uh, capital gains were 1.5% of GDP. They were very small. That we cut it to 28% from uh, 87 to 96, they went up to 2.5% of GDP. We cut it to 20%, to, uh, it reached 4.6% of GDP, and when it was 15%, it was 5% of GDP. So we are now taxing twice as much, many gains at a lower rate. And, uh, and that shows up, as, and because the rate's lower and because more gains are showing up on tax returns, they show up as increased income when, in fact, it's just... You can see the you can see the income because somebody decided to sell something. If they hadn't sold it, you wouldn't see it, and you'd say, "Oh, well, they don't have the income. All they've got is assets that are worth a lot of money." All right, let's go up there to Steve. Yeah. <coughs> uh, this my name is Steve Hank, and I have no affiliation. Uh, this is a fairly, fairly broad question, but it's the the what I thought originally you you were going to talk about, and that is. What do you mean by fairness when it comes to income inequality? Um, and because looking to me, looking at income inequality almost presumes uh, that, the, that the income pie, we have a fixed income pie, and therefore the rich are getting um, income at the expense of the poor. And I would say for the most part that's not true, Therefore, I don't really understand how uh, the fact that a rich person makes billions of dollars um, is unfair to the poor person if, it, if there's an expanding pie and it has nothing to do with uh, how much the rich person makes in terms of the fairness of how much the poor person pays in taxes. All right, nice broad philosophical question. When LeBron James makes a lot of money, who loses? I like that one. Can I have the, that? The one? Spain loses. Yeah. yeah. That's... Um, you're absolutely right. A lot, a lot of the literature that I, about Piketty and size starts out by saying the top one percent get twenty percent of our income. Actually, they get a hundred percent of their own income, and and that's the way I naturally view it. And when we talk about some of these. Uh, obvious cases where there really have been some high income hedge fund managers. Now, uh, some of those are pretty astronomical in the billions. They can really throw your average no numbers kahooey, and that's why I don't favor doing it that way. I'd use median numbers. 
Um, but what does that hurt? The only person who's hurt by a hedge fund manager getting rich are, are his clients, and they're not exactly poor people. You can't be a hedge fund client unless you've got at least a million bucks to spare, and I mean to spare. Uh, in the case of the stock options that we were talking about, which proliferated not just at the top 1%, but among uh, people like my daughter who was at AOL at the time. Um, uh, so the stock option turns out to do well. The economy, the, st the company does well. They, uh, the, and uh, the person gets to cash it out and gets a, becomes a Microsoft millionaire, we used to call them. Uh, who does that hurt? It hurts stockholders. They, they, there's a little bit of dilution to stockholders. But since when do we start worrying about stockholders? They're not necessarily a poor bunch either. Uh, the, and the, the whole concept, that, that uh, the zero-sum concept that the income gains at the top when uh, somebody, uh, the founders of Apple or of Google or of Facebook, make a lot of money, gee, that must have come from somebody. Well, uh, sure, it comes from the users of those services, which I rather like. Uh, without Google, I'd be a much dumber person. Even. You know, we're in the shadow of the National Gallery here at Cato. So let, let me talk about Andrew Mellon's view. I mean, Mellon said, look, you want the rich to pick up the tab for government? I have a plan to do that. The rich can pay everything. No taxation on the lower classes. Keep taxes on the rich low and the government small. Then the rich will manifest their income to the tax man, will pay the amount, and will be able to fund the government in its entirety. The problem is if government gets big and taxes go up, the rich hide their income, and when you get their taxes, it's not enough, and you have to start taxing the lower classes. That's what he said. You want, the, you, you want to solve inequality? You want the government to pick up the entire tab for government? He found a way to do so. Right there. <clears throat> Gene Rosendahl, uh, retired uh, consultant, uh, Washington consultant. Um, I had two side notes. One on the Gini index seems to me that if you don't normalize it for age distribution that you automatically get a, dist uh, a distortion. <clears throat> the other thing is uh, on capital gains tax, it was my understanding that the reason that it was done uh, has a lower rate is because it's derived from uh, corporations' uh, profits and it's already been taxed once. Uh, so uh, on the, getting to the original question, uh, and maybe I don't quite understand this chart correctly, but uh, Dr. Reynolds' uh, big blue chart here um, shows a decline of, a decline anyway of some sort, and and he's made a very strong point that, that th this is pre-tax and not after, uh, after distribution. And I agree that this misrepresents uh, any argument in terms of, of uh, equality and, and, and welfare. <clears throat> On the other hand, does this not uh, suggest that the market uh, is declining in its ability to distribute uh, income, assuming that that's an an important issue, but uh, the question being that doesn't this in fact show the market's performance? Yeah, uh, yeah. The flip side of that chart, the chart says that income, as Piketty and Sias define it, excludes transfer payments, but also excludes uh, benefits such as employer-paid uh, medical benefits. That's a big part of it. So that's just a different way of getting compensation. I just say they're not counting compensation right. If I were to, to flip around just the other part of it and say transfer payments as a share of personal income, are they rising dramatically? You bet they are. And does that mean that that's at the expense of the, the market economy? Yeah, sooner or later it has to be. Um, uh, 
transfer payments are uh, just what they sound like. They're transfers from one person to another that are usually from uh, 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 people who have some money to those who have more political clout and can get a big transfer payment like corporate welfare or subsidies to electric cars or windmills or something. Next question, uh, up in the back there. Thank you, Rick from uh, Fairfax. Um, as far as the progress, uh, CBO has said that the tax system is effectively progressive. Here's a quote from 2009. Uh, the overall federal, federal tax system is progressive. Effective rates generally rise with income, end quote. They've shown in like four or five different reports over 10 years that with the uh, quintile charts and the top 5% and the top 1%, that uh, the uh, effective average total federal rate is about 28% on over 250000 The income under 250000 is taxed at about 15 to 20%. The state and local is actually regressive, according to the ITEP charts. But since the federal is the bulk of it, Overall, it's progressive, somewhat. 34% total on the income over 250, about 25 to 28 for the income under that. So the president and the Democratic Party and the media implying that there is not shared sacrifice is 100% erroneous. There's no equivocation on that whatsoever. And also, it should be noted for the sake of completeness that the, there are indirect costs, which are, you know, for regulations, tax system, external externalities, and excessive legal system costs. And those are about 22% universal. And those are progressively incurred as well. So if you take, let's say, 26 for that, add it to the 34, you're getting to a 60% effective government-related cost on that income over 250. If you want to raise the top statutory rate by 4.6%, I think CBO says you get a 3.3% a, a, a effective increase. So you're talking about 63%. That is the Democratic Party position. And one way, I'll, I'll just finish up on this, that they get people to uh, believe this, and they've got half of the country believing that ta the tax system is somehow regressive. But one method they use is they say the top 400 have more assets than the bottom half of the country. Well, each year we spend $5.6 according to the BEA. There's about $2.8 of indirect costs by government. So let's say $8 trillion of government-related costs each year. Out of last year's 15 trillion economy, that's 54%, which is the cost of government, they estimate, revised. And if you take 25% of that 8 trillion as waste, which I certainly believe that there is, that's $2 trillion per year of waste, which is more in one year than the bottom 50% have in total accumulated assets. So for Bernie Sanders to be saying... All right, well, what's the question, though? Well, I just wanted to put that out. You guys can comment on it. All right, any responses? 
you know, I am going to say that I, I came to praise Piketty and say as not to bury them, believe it. Um, they actually wrote a great paper in 2006 uh, saying that, you know, the effective top income tax rate has not changed over the last 50 years. The effective top income tax rate, their data, was 30% in 1960, and it was 30% in 2005. Never changed, even though statutory tax rates went from 91 down to 35. All right, do we have time for one last question right here? Adam Powell from the University of Southern California. Uh, you said uh, to the first speaker, you said twice today, the real income of the rich has been flat throughout the 20th century. So are you saying that all of the growth in income in the United States over 100 years went to the non-rich? No, I mean, all I'm saying is that... Um, sure. Yeah, right. We, uh, we have to... Uh, we've given the Piketty Says database a ni- nice long years, uh, nine years of life. Um, it's time to marry that with ETI discussions to see how areas of high taxation uh, bring about lower reported income and areas of low taxation bring about higher income. I, I have to admit, I do not know what the answer is, but I do know that it's going to be a lot flatter than this you know, U-shape that Piketty and Sayers show. Okay. And let me ask one final question for everybody. The one area where I assume there would be universal agreement is it would be good to have policies that improve the living standards of the poor. If you were to identify 30 seconds worth of policy, what would everybody propose here? I guess we'll start in the, uh, and come down the table here. Yeah, I'd, I'd go the Andrew Mellon route. Uh, shrink government and, and cut taxes, and the rich will be able to pay for everything. And, uh, you know, the, the, the poor will have no tax burden whatsoever. I'm, I'm surprisingly speechless on that topic. I mean, there are many regulations, such as minimum wage laws, that hurt poor. There are, can. You can't get a job, you're, you're worse off. Uh, welfare hurt the poor. That's been proven when we put a work requirement on it. Poor people went to work, things like that. Um, I think that the best thing to help the poor would be to reduce their dependency, and we're not moving in that direction. We are uh, saying, providing you don't work too hard or, or, or try too hard or go to school too long, we will pay for your food, your medical care, and give you a check, and so on and so on. And that just keeps you down at the bottom forever. So uh, uh, incentives, it's all about incentives. And transfer payments are a bad incentive. High tax rates are a bad incentive. Scott? Yeah, I get to be lefty again. Um, so I, 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 not very lefty, but uh, I, I think I would do three things. I would uh, try to change um, the aspirations of poor kids and their families um, through a number of, of different. Uh, we, we should try something until we get it right. But I think one thing that's interesting is to think about is uh, that if you provided uh, savings accounts uh, to kids when they were born, uh, potentially universally but progressively funded. Um, so that uh, poor kids could know that if, assuming they can get into a school, that they could actually afford two years of it um, through this uh, savings account uh, when, they, when they reach that age, that could shift incentives for kids and their families to, to sort of aspire to do, to do other stuff. Um, not so leftily, I think, you know, if we could reduce unplanned pregnancy, uh, I think that's becoming uh, a, a big problem uh, among people who don't have a college degree uh, out of wedlock births, or uh, I think now uh, half of all births, if that's if, if I'm remembering that right. Um, and then the third thing I would do would be kind of a grand bargain between the left and right, and throw a lot more money uh, at, at 
uh, at education uh, in return for more accountability, uh, more flexibility, uh, things like that. All right, with that, let me give some final announcements. The lunch will be on the second level in the George M. Yeager Conference Center, which is up the spiral staircase that presumably everyone passed on their way to the auditorium. There are restrooms on the second floor on your way to lunch. Look for the yellow wall. I assume that'll be obvious once you get to the second floor. I work here. I should know that, but I don't. Uh, Please join me in thanking our speakers. (laughs) 